Hello, welcome to Philosophy Voiced, a podcast from the Center for Ethics, University of Pardubice. I am Kamila Patsovska from the Pardubice Center for Ethics. And I am Ruth Rebecca Tietjen from the Center for Subjectivity Research in Copenhagen. Today we are talking to Rick Anthony Furtak. Rick is an associate professor in philosophy at Colorado College, former president of the American Søren Kierkegaard Society and an acclaimed poet. He is the author of two monographs, Wisdom in Love from 2005 and Knowing Emotions from 2018. Rick is going to give an intensive seminar at the Pardubice Center for Ethics in the following days, which is the occasion of this podcast and inspiration to some of our questions. Rick, welcome. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you for the invitation and thank you, Ruth, for being here. Let us begin by asking you to say a little bit about yourself. Who are you as a philosopher? How would you characterize your work? I would like to characterize my work as belonging to a broad tradition of existential thought existential thought broadly understood to include uh, an approach to philosophy as a way of writing and a way of living that has its roots in the ancient Greeks and includes figures like Kierkegaard quite prominently, but also someone like Thoreau who's not normally classified as an existential philosopher, but shares the concern with meaning in life and uh, how to live with wisdom that an author like Kierkegaard or Nietzsche or Camus is also associated with. You wrote your dissertation on Søren Kierkegaard's conception of love. How did Kierkegaard influence you as a philosopher and as a person? Well, I didn't know when I started graduate school that I would be working on Kierkegaard, but I was um, captivated by his work already. And my first introduction had been in a course as an undergraduate, and it was to the sickness unto death, which I found completely incomprehensible, although it's become a favorite text of mine. Then, um, during the year that I was at Oxford, I read Repetition. I got the copy that was bound with fear and trembling, but I decided to read the B-side Repetition first. And that was the text that drew me in. It's, I think, to this day, Kierkegaard's most beautiful work, his novella. And I was thinking about the emotions. I was thinking about emotion in a classical context in relation to Stoicism, in relation to Aristotle, in themes in Plato's dialogues. And I became convinced that if I wanted to develop a kind of passionate anti-Stoicism that Kierkegaard would be the ideal figure to work with. My thinking unfolds very much in relation to texts, and those became the texts that occupied two-thirds, basically, of my PhD, which was my first book. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the next question. Uh, you did your PhD in Chicago with Marta Nussbaum as your supervisor, and I can see why, considering your philosophical orientation on literature and emotions, but not quite in view of Kierkegaard. But uh, since, you know, since Nussbaum is such a well-known figure in the philosophy of emotions and in the philosophy of literature, I cannot help asking how was it? Uh, how was it to be supervised by someone with 
well-pronounced philosophy of her own. Was it difficult to find your own way? I didn't find it difficult. Um, Martha had already taken me on as a student and made that commitment at the time when I surprised her with the information that I would be focusing on Kierkegaard. She confessed that Kierkegaard was one of two philosophers she had read and failed completely to understand. That was, I think, her way of putting it. The other <laughs> being Hegel. And uh, she had read, for example, the concept of irony, which is about Socrates, of course. And that's not a favorite book of mine. That one actually puts me to sleep, although I have friends that think very highly of it, and I've been partly persuaded by them. I still don't like it all that much. The fact that she allowed me to do a dissertation that was largely about Kierkegaard shows you something about Martha, that she doesn't want acolytes or followers. She is an extremely strong person, even forceful, you could say. She's very driven. She has over 500 articles published and over 60 honorary degrees. And you don't get 60-some honorary degrees without being pretty fiercely driven yourself. But Martha would always say things like, don't cite me so much as you are <laughs> citing me. Whereas I know many people that have written Kierkegaard dissertations where all of their footnotes are to their two graduate supervisors. And apparently those graduate supervisors don't have any problem with it. So it's complicated working out one's voice in relation to someone with a strong voice of her own. But I had read her book, Love's Knowledge, first before any of her other work. And the way that she talked about emotion and human vulnerability in relation to literature, literary texts such as Proust, that basically I was introduced to through Martha's work, it inspired me. And so I sought her out so that when I was accepted and visiting the campus as an admitted PhD student was the first time that I had a conversation with her. And I was seeking to confirm that she was in fact staying at the University of Chicago at the time, which she was and has obviously. Since that time in the late 90s when I started there, she became a full-fledged member of the Department of Philosophy. Um, and so I mentioned Kierkegaard as evidence that she allowed, allowed me to develop my own voice, that Martha let me come into my own and wanted me to develop my views. I do defend a theory of emotion that builds on hers and has many common elements. I've thought if I ever wrote something more extended about Martha's work, it would be an account of her theory of emotion as cognition that would try to distinguish it from some of its caricatures. She's someone whose views are often caricatured, and I think that has something to do with her prolific output. It has something to do with her personality, no doubt, that she attracts that kind of criticism. I think it has something to do with her being a woman in philosophy of a generation that had very few women in philosophy. And so I think that her approach to literary texts is often mischaracterized, but I would focus more on her emotional theory. If I wrote that, though, it would be hard to separate what I think her theory should be from me explaining what her theory is. 
there is one area in which I've persuaded her to make a concession. And I would call that the greatest evidence that my views have influenced her. It has to do with her work on political emotions. There's an edited collection coming out within the next half year or so, edited by someone named Brooks, B-R-O-O-K-S. And it's specifically about Martha's work on political emotions. I wrote something for a book symposium on her book, Political Emotions, with the title Political Emotions, that is. A few years ago, that came out in Phenomenology and the Cognitive Sciences. And I was trying to persuade her to admit that the role of the body in affective experience was more conspicuous than she had theoretically acknowledged, although I think in her examples, she does acknowledge it. And the first time around, this was in the mid-teens, I think 2014 is when this was published. The first time around, she basically said, no, I don't think I need to acknowledge the role of the body any more than I do. This time, I extended the attempt to persuade her, and I succeeded in her making the concession that's now going to be in her response to these papers in that edited volume that I mentioned. And it's just what I've been wanting her to formulate overtly. So that was a case in which I feel like I've influenced her. Mm -hmm. That's great. It's really a sign of a great spirit to actually acknowledge that she has been wrong, maybe. Or she acknowledge she has to uh, encourages her students to disagree with mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. And if she attracted mere followers, then there would be more of them out there who are like clones of Martha herself. And yeah, yeah. they don't exist. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe that connects also to the next question. Like, there are two more philosophers important for the Pardubice Center for Ethics that are connected with the University of Chicago, Stanley Cavell and James Conard. Actually, we did a podcast interview with Jim two years ago. Have they influenced your work in any way? So I'll start with Jim Conant because I know him. We know each other from our time together in Chicago, and I'm good friends with some of his students. Um, so I was already Martha's student and already working on my preliminary essay at the time that Jim Conant, along with John Hoagland, was recruited by Chicago and came to join our department. I might have ended up working with him, but as it turns out, uh, that wasn't something that we decided to pursue. Martha said, well then, we'll have to find an external Kierkegaardian. She first asked Bernard Williams, and he admitted to knowing Nietzsche much better than Kierkegaard. Then we asked Alistair Hannay, and he became my external committee member. I should mention that I also studied with Jonathan Lear, and Arnold Davidson was the last member of my committee, the Foucaultian. Um, Jonathan Lear being the Aristotelian and Freudian. And also in Chicago, I learned quite a bit from Jean-Luc Marion, although he wasn't on my committee. Um, I admire Jim Conant's work. There's a certain tendency that I notice in a, a piece of his. I notice in his essay that's about perspectivism, for example, a certain way of cultivating a mystique about what his own view is. He'll allude to his reading of Kant without saying what his reading of Kant is, but only saying things like, pseudo-Kantianism holds this, 
but he doesn't say what the true Kantianism holds. That wasn't a tendency that I entirely trusted in Jim. And um, Jim also is a strong person and someone with whom uh, those who are studying are very much, I think, devoted to working in the legacy of Wittgenstein, which has never been a very important part of my formation and one of the reasons that I didn't end up working with Jim Conant. But it wasn't that we tried and failed. It was something that we never really attempted. About Stanley Cavell, I have a lot more to say because he is, through a couple of ways, a philosophical grandmother of mine. He was the teacher of Martha Nussbaum. He was also the teacher of Arnold Davidson, who I just mentioned as another of my graduate supervisors. And so through both of them, I was connected with Cavell, and I did meet Stanley Cavell in person when he was in Chicago teaching. Um, in fact, I specifically remember going out for him in the student restaurant and having burritos with Stanley Cavell. And we spoke about Thoreau, and I would end up having the chance to interview Cavell about Thoreau and his interpretation of Thoreau a few years later after I was already in Chicago. Um, Cavell is someone whose work opened up a space in Anglophone philosophy for people who were thinking about philosophical questions when they saw movies, when they went to classic American films, when they were thinking about baseball, when they were reading literature. Um, he wrote about Kierkegaard just as he wrote about Wittgenstein at times when these were not taken as seriously as philosophers. And so I wouldn't say that Cavell was as, let's say, I wouldn't say that Cavell was as major an influence as Martha Nussbaum was on my work. Um, and as you see, I still call him Cavell and not Stanley. I just didn't get to know him that well personally. But um, I have many of his books. I cite him often. And I was particularly inspired by his championing of Thoreau as a philosopher to be reckoned with and taken seriously because that had been my conviction. But having it mirrored in someone who was so established in his own career meant a lot to me to kind of sanction my own self-conception as an American philosopher. The three of us met through the European Philosophical Society for the study of emotions. You and Imke von Maurer, one of the society's former managing assistants, have even organized very successful online workshops with philosophers of emotions from that group. You told me that you feel at home in that group and that you mentioned that you identify yourself as an European philosopher. Can you elaborate on that? When I said that I identified as a European philosopher of emotion, what I had in mind was that the boundaries that separate people who do research on affective experience in North America don't seem to separate them quite as starkly in Europe. That's been my experience of interdisciplinary psychology conferences on emotion as well. That, for example, the European research community in social psychology is more likely to be well-versed in the philosophy of Nietzsche, whereas the people who study Nietzsche and the people who study social psychology, on the other hand, in the US, they definitely tend to be in separate conversations. 
And the same is true with the divide between the people who are interested in engaging with affective science in one form or another philosophically, and then those who study phenomenology. Again, in North America, the phenomenologists are one kind of person, and then the people engaging with affective science are another kind of person. Whereas in Europe, the community I think that we've brought together through the EPSI conference and through our online workshops demonstrates that these are not exclusive possibilities. And that's something that I've really liked about this community through which, as you mentioned, we all met. Good, you already mentioned some of the differences between American and European philosophy. As an American philosopher raised in Chicago, how would you see the connection between contemporary American philosophy and European philosophy? Right, well, I would add that I only have the option available to me of being some kind of American philosopher, some kind of American philosopher because my um, identity is that I'm American for better or worse, and I think there are good things about that, as well as some obvious bad ones. Um, I nod to my fellow American here <laughs> in the audience. Um, so America is home, and an author like Thoreau has given me the sense that one can be an Anglophone philosopher who identifies as American, and even be a kind of literary philosopher which I aspire to be, and um, these are part of what it means to have studied in Chicago, in the heartland of America, the Midwest, and to be from a Midwestern American family, although one that has drifted into the Southwest. Mm -hmm. Yes, but still you have this existentialist drive, which seems very European. Do you think your Czech roots play some role here? I remember that one of your grandparents come from the Pardubice region, right? That's right, yes. And as you know, Ruth and I were visiting the town, Visoke Mito, over the weekend, which is where my ancestors lived. I got to see the old medieval church where I would have had generations of ancestors attend Mass, and one way in which my Czech roots are relevant to my philosophical work, and just, I would say, to my formation, um, is their Catholicism. Whereas I was raised Catholic and drifted away from the Church in my late teens and early twenties, I was brought by Kierkegaard's writings to renew some connection with Christianity, which remains a very charged and complicated one to this day, but it's part of who I am. So that's probably the way in which this identity shapes me the most, but I've mentioned that the countryside that my family is from in Nebraska is very much like the Bohemian countryside around here, and all the way out to visit this rural town where my grandmother's family on my dad's side lived. Um, I was thinking it looked like Nebraska, but of course the right thing to say would be that Nebraska looks like Czechia. Let's hope that you feel uh, uh, at home in the Center for Ethics similar <laughs> to your feeling at home in this, in this countryside. <laughs>
A large part of your philosophical work is engaging with literature and poetry. You've co-edited a volume on Thoreau's importance for philosophy, whom you already mentioned, written about Emily Dickinson's and Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry, and you're currently working on a book on Marcel Proust's La Recherche du Temps Perdu. You're also one of the founding fathers and the main editor of the new Bloomsbury series, Philosophy and Poetry. What would he say do these poetic and literary perspectives add to philosophy? And what does discussing them philosophically add to the literary works themselves? That's a fantastic question. And to include a plug for the series, this is a book series called Bloomsbury Studies in Philosophy and Poetry that will publish its first two titles in the early months of 2022. And uh, Ruth is an editorial board member. So thank you, Ruth, for doing that. And the idea is partly that simply there is good philosophy in much good poetry and that there is a poetic aspect to philosophy. In order for those to be meaningful statements, though, it's important not to blur the boundary entirely because philosophy is one thing and poetry is something else. Part of what I'm drawn to in translating poetry is simply the mechanics of sound, language. I love taking a line apart and putting it back together and translation allows me to do that, to take something from German or French or Spanish even and try to figure out how it works and remake it in my own language. Um, that concern with sound is more in the background in most philosophical writing, but the authors who have always inspired me the most are the literary philosophers from Plato through Kierkegaard and Thoreau to Nietzsche, Camus, even an author like Merleau-Ponty I would describe as a literary philosopher, and he acknowledged that connection in his own work. Sartre, of course, wrote novels and wrote long novelistic passages, even in his philosophical systematic works. This is all characteristic of Kierkegaard's legacy. To write in a way that's for the ear as well as for the mind to process and interpret analytically. All of these authors write in a way that they get you engaged with ideas as well as with words at the same time and in such a way that what's important is not what Rilke thinks, not what Kierkegaard thinks, but in, or it's also not the point, what does Plato himself believe? The question is, what can we learn from these texts? What do we ourselves come to think and understand when we're engaging with them? And that's why it's not possible to be a Kierkegaard scholar in quite the same way that it's possible to be a scholar of Descartes or Kant those works lend themselves to a reader who wants to interpret what did Kant or Descartes himself mean. Whereas I don't think that's what Kierkegaard's or Rilke's works inspire us to think about. It's very complicated in the case of Proust because he's often confused with his narrator, but they're quite distinct. And the narrator's voice, in order to be understood, has to be distinguished from the author's own voice. That's something that Martha hasn't always done, at least throughout her work on Proust, that I think it's very important to do.
And yet, because the narrator, like some of Kierkegaard's pseudonyms, is both not Proust himself, but he's also not anti-Proust or someone other than Proust, who's wholly separate from him, very much like Kierkegaard's character, Johannes Klimakus, who is neither Kierkegaard nor not Kierkegaard. Um, these literary philosophers, these poetic philosophers, if you will, invite us to wonder what their creators themselves thought, but not in such a way as to be misled into thinking that the point to take away is what did Kierkegaard or Proust himself think, but rather what do I think about love, for example, and what does Proust's novel invite me to think about this topic? And I think it's very illuminating, although I don't very often agree with the views of the narrator. What plays an important role in your engagement with both literary and poetic works is the fact that they show a sensibility for the variety of different modes of being and forms of attunement to the world, a sensibility for ambiguity. This is something that seems to be lacking in philosophy, or at least in some forms of philosophy, that in their striving for clarity try to get rid of all forms of ambiguity. How can we write philosophy and avoid becoming guilty of disambiguating and flattening the world? How can we philosophize and teach philosophy in a way that trains our sensibility for the world rather than distracting us from it by abstraction? That's another really good question. Um, and by the way, they're good questions when I don't say it's a really good question too. But this is one of the ones that especially makes me pause and decide how should I answer it best. There's a value in making distinctions and in working out what follows from what as we're trained to philosophically. But I'll mention a Czech author, um, one whom I just learned is not one of Camilla's favorites in our conversation earlier today, but the author of the first book in Czech that I purchased this morning, the first that I purchased in my whole life, that is, and it was this morning, um, Milan Kundera, in both his Jerusalem Prize address and in an interview from around the same time in The Art of the Novel, he refers to a dual legacy and he says, the philosophical tradition in the modern era traces its ancestry to Descartes, whereas the novel traces its legacy to Cervantes and to Don Quixote as a foundational text rather than the meditations on first philosophy. He refers to the wisdom of uncertainty is his way of putting it rather than ambiguity. But I think the term ambiguity picks up on very much the same phenomena as uncertainty does. How do you do justice to the uncertainty of human existence? The tendency toward abstraction can help us to clarify things, but it also runs the risk of losing sight of the reality that we're abstracting from. And that's a perennial temptation in philosophy. I'm very much in the legacy of Descartes as much as I am of Cervantes. And maybe the Descartes style of writing comes a little more easily to me. I would never write something like Don Quixote. I'm not really a storyteller myself. But I do aspire to be a poet as well as a philosopher. And still, there's something that a lyric poem can do 
that's different from what most philosophical texts do. The most interesting texts may challenge these boundaries, but philosophy is still one kind of thing. Poetry is a different kind of thing. They're not simply identical, but philosophy and literature are not separate as much as Iris Murdoch herself claims that they are when I think to satisfy her strict analytic colleagues, she describes philosophy as very cool and scientific. And then she refers to narrative fiction as something entirely different. Now she has the right as philosopher and novelist to understand these pursuits however she wants to. But her theory has the consequence that she is not a philosopher when she's writing fiction. And many people would disagree with that characterization of her work. It would also have the consequence that Kierkegaard or Nietzsche cannot be a philosopher, or that Sartre or Camus cannot really be a novelist because the latter write philosophical prose and the former write a kind of poetic writing. And I think that's an unwanted consequence. I think the very best literary philosophers challenge this boundary that I've said is uh, one that does exist, or at least let's say the distinction between the philosophical and the literary is worth making. Some people would say that it's true of modern literature in particular, that it helps us understand and cope with ambiguity and uncertainty. There's only partial truth in that, in my opinion. Um, as you know, Ruth, one of my favorite literary authors is Shakespeare, who is certainly not modern, and I still find inspiration in ancient Greek texts of all different kinds, as you know, also Camilla. So I think that there are modes of writing that speak to our concerns as finite creatures implicated in an ambiguous existence. And these authors are hard to classify as simply philosophical or simply literary. So that's very much the legacy that I seek to be a part of in my own work. And it's an ongoing challenge to work out what does that mean? How do I write in a way that's true to experience, that's relevant to my own existence and that of others that I would hope to speak to? It's an ongoing challenge. It's not one that I claim to have resolved. Let's talk a bit more about poetry. You've translated Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus to English and there soon is to appear an extended version of this translation with new sonnets added. And not only that, you're also writing and publishing poetry. And I'm very excited that soon your first collection of poems will get published. Can you tell us something about how these two parts of your writing, or in fact of you yourself, relate to each other? What does it mean to you that soon your first collection of poems will be published apart from the fact that then you will no longer count as a young poet? Yes. So it's true um, that later this year, just a few months from now, around the same time, there will be published a revised and expanded version of my Rilke sonnets in translation. And also a book of my own poems. So I've said something about why I like working with Rilke and in translating poetry. 
I've always wanted to publish a book of my own poetry. So it's a fulfillment of a dream that I've had as long as I've had any intellectual aspirations at all since I was a teenager. And in that sense, it vindicates my own feeling that I should not be writing merely expository philosophical prose. Even if I'm writing mostly expository philosophical prose, there's a nagging voice in my head that keeps telling me, write poetry, like the voice that Socrates heard in his head telling him to compose music. And I'm never quite sure that I've satisfied my voice, but I think bringing out this volume of my own poems alongside the new Rilke edition should help to satisfy it for some time. Since I know some of your poems, I uh, also want you to continue writing poetry, of course. Your book on Proust discusses the relation between love and knowledge, and you take Sextus Empiricus then modes of skepticism as an ordering principle. How did you come to bring these two very different thinkers together? What led me to bring them together was not any connection between classical skepticism and the work of Proust in its influences. His philosophical education was in modern philosophy and in some ways an early modern skeptic such as Hume is more part of his intellectual context than an ancient skeptic like Sextus. However, I find ancient Greek ways of thinking unusually congenial, even though I'm a 21st century American, born in the 20th century, I've always found myself at home in Greek categories of thinking. It's one reason why I'm never persuaded that our cultural context determines everything about what ways of thinking lend themselves to us most readily. And so the classical form of skeptical doubt is more intuitive to me than Cartesian doubt or Humean doubt. And I've used it as an interpretive principle in sorting out the varieties of skepticism that I think are at issue in his novel. The question basically is, does love put us in touch with a reality that's not of our making? Does it illuminate our existence? Or is love a distorted mode of perceiving or apprehending? And Proust's narrator tends toward the latter answer, that it is a kind of distortion, whereas I tend to think that he's wrong and that love does illuminate things that we could not otherwise appreciate about the world, especially about the world of beloved others. That's something that I work out in dialogue with skepticism because it's the obvious contrasting view. That's actually quite a nice bridging question. Let us now turn to the philosophy of emotions, which is your second major area of research, an area that is witnessing quite a boom nowadays, it seems to me. It is quite clear by now that your way of studying emotions takes the literary way. Way. Is that right? But a lot of contemporary philosophy of emotion relies on empirical research. 
how would you characterize these two different approaches and your inclination towards the literary? Would you say there is a rivalry between the two? I remember the review you wrote with Imke von Maur that criticizes quite sharply the lack of acknowledgement of the other schools in emotions. I've heard it said that philosophers include people who are drawn more toward a model of scientific understanding and others who are drawn toward the model of philosophy as a kind of art. And if those are the categories, then I think it's obvious where my sympathies lie with philosophy as a mode of literary art. Thoreau wrote that he had two notebooks. One was for empirical observations, facts, and the other was for lines of poetry. But he said that the most startling, significant, natural facts would challenge that rough distinction that he had in his mind. I would like to think that Thoreau is right about that, but the truth is I don't always find that to be the case. I find that the scientific approach can be reductive. And I think it's a task of philosophy as a humanistic enterprise to vindicate the human world of meaning, to vindicate meaningful interpretation against the threat of reductive science. And that's something that Imka and I, in the review that you mentioned, thought that the author of that book, Dylan Evans, was guilty of doing, that he paid excessive respect to empirical science without actually being up to date on the latest scientific research. And that's an awful combination. It's like the worst of both worlds. I think that um, Thoreau was more a man of science than I myself am. And there's actually a poem by Robert Frost that I think addresses this question of the two modes of understanding. Would you like to hear it? Absolutely, yes. So it was first published as Choose Something Like a Star, but when Frost collected his poems, he called it Take Something Like a Star. And that's the title that I'll use, the one that he later arrived at. O star, the fairest one in sight, we grant thy loftiness the right to some obscurity of cloud. It will not do to say of night, since dark is what brings out your light. Some mystery befriends the proud, but to be wholly taciturn at your remove is not allowed. Say something to us we can learn by heart and when alone repeat. Say something, and it says, I burn. But say with what degree of heat. Talk Fahrenheit, talk centigrade. Use language we can comprehend. Tell us what elements you blend. It gives us strangely little aid, but does tell something in the end. And steadfast as Keats' Eremite, not even swooning from its sphere, it asks a certain of us here. It asks of us a certain pride that when at times the mob is swayed to carry praise or blame too far, we may take something like a star to stay our minds on and be stayed. You pointed out to me that there's an astronomical clock. There is an astronomical clock in the main center of Prague. And the symbolism on this astronomical clock suggests that philosophy and religion on one hand and science on the other hand, specifically astronomy, 
are understood as harmonious, or that they can be understood as harmonious. I think the poem points out that they are different modes of understanding, and those of us who would wish to connect them don't always succeed at doing so. Yes, thank you for the poem. It just strikes me that it's, it's impossible to follow up with a philosophical question. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of poetry. Sometimes you reach a kind of resolution at the end of a poem. And when we're talking about Emily Dickinson on Thursday, I plan simply to end with a poem that I will say nothing about. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice way to end philosophical discussion, I, I believe. <laughs> Maybe we could switch the questions, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, w I would like to press you more a little bit about the connection between philosophy and science, because uh, oh, I asked specifically about philosophy of emotions, and emotions are a bit, uh, have a special place in philosophy, and it seems to me that the scientific approach uh, on the one hand, and literary approach, on the other hand, have a special bearing on this kind of topic. So maybe could I press you more a little bit uh, with my, with my uh, previous question? What is it that makes the uh, sort of literary way of treating emotions uh, richer or more valuable in your view as opposed to the scientific way? I think any of us who are members of contemporary secular culture, as all of us are in this room, as I'm sure most of your listeners are themselves, we are trained to have enormous respect for anything that can call itself science. And that, let's say that assumption is one that is often combined with a fairly narrow conception of what it is for something to be scientific. So put these together, and we do give privilege to a mode of rationality that's based on detaching the observer from what is observed. Whereas in our emotional experience, we're not detached, we're precisely involved, affected, impacted. The world acts upon us, as the Stoics rightly pointed out. But unlike the Stoics, I think that we're right to have the world act upon us and impact us and affect us. And in this sense, I think a literary way of understanding reality is more appropriate than a scientific one if they do have to be separate. And given our cultural presuppositions, we need to cultivate the more literary, which is why I've spent more time with poetry than with neuroscience and in the future, I plan on doing so to an even more pronounced degree. In fact, I was just talking with your new colleague, Laura Candiato, about an Australian panpsychist philosopher whose name is Freya Matthews. And Matthews points out that we as philosophers should have the resources for challenging our contemporary worldview and perhaps returning toward a sense of nature as invested with sacred meaning, not invested by us, but simply as having that meaning in itself. And taking emotion seriously as a mode of apprehension means taking meaning in life seriously. 
which is why existential philosophy and philosophy of the emotion overlap as much as they do in my understanding. So I guess um, if I tend to favor the poetic account, it's because I'm concerned about the reductiveness of many scientific explanations. And if I engage with scientific research, it's because I don't want to leave it to those who overestimate the value of science. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, I would like to speak about your book, Knowing Emotions, from 2018. It has truthfulness and recognition in affective experience as a subtitle. We have already spoken about love and knowledge. Could you tell us something more about your theory of emotions or affectivity in general and about the way emotions are connected to truth and knowledge? I'm afraid that in spite of the bloom I mentioned above, a common graduate of philosophy still believes that emotions are here only to blur or even to prevent knowledge. It's remarkable to me how prevalent that bias is still. And the bias that sees emotions as irrational is even entrenched within the philosophy of the emotion in ways that I'll talk about tomorrow in the first seminar. Um, part of what I try to do in the book that you just referred to is to survey different theoretical positions that I feel inadequately capture the ways that emotions are a mode of knowledge and they do connect us with the world and reveal something true to us. That includes those who would describe themselves as challenging the emotion versus reason dichotomy. And so the very fact that that dichotomy and that bias remain with us as strong as they are shows that wanting to reject them is not enough to actually think through what that rejection looks like. I think it's an ongoing process, just as it's, an, <laughs> as it's an ongoing process to continue coming to terms with the ambiguity of human existence. That's an endless project. It's also an unfinished project to keep rethinking the intentionality of emotion and the ways that our emotions respond to aspects of the world. So what I tried to do in that book and what I am continuing to do in my further work on emotion, including in relation to literature, is I want to show that emotion is a mode of knowing, that it can be, and that if it is distorted, sometimes that's because it seeks to be accurate. And that's very different from thinking that it's outside the realm of rationality altogether. So is not the outcome rather that we need to change what we consider knowledge to be, rather that we have to change what we consider emotions to be? Very much so. I think that's right. Jesse Prinz complains somewhere that, well, it's in his 2004 book, Prinz complains that cognitive science hasn't settled upon a definition of cognition and what cognition is. But I think that there are are ambiguity. There are some ambiguities in the phenomena of emotion, so that when we're trying to understand those phenomena, we need to work with the category of cognition without having too artificially precise a definition of the cognitive. 
And so, yes, I think we need to redefine knowledge, just as you said, in order to incorporate emotion into it. As someone working primarily in ethics and moral philosophy, I cannot help noticing that many of your topics in the philosophy of emotions have moral significance. How would you characterize your relation to moral philosophy? Did Kierkegaard leave at his footprint there? Do you think the two disciplines, ethics and philosophy of emotions, cooperate enough? What do you think should be the impact of study of emotions on moral philosophy nowadays? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that most of my work, broadly construed, is a type of moral philosophy. I think that most philosophy should be a type of moral philosophy. People who focus on questions in normative ethics can often do so quite narrowly in a way that leaves me cold, at least. And most of my work is more in the domain of what you would call moral psychology, but also with an interest in metaethics. All the debate about love and skepticism in Proust is more metaethical than it is moral psychological, or at least as much. I also think, though, that we uh, need to have a general conception of value and of the experience of value that would include our aesthetic experience, it would include our spiritual and religious experience, and that the realm of the affective includes these just as much as it includes the ethical in a more strict sense. And I think you certainly, I just use the categories of aesthetic and religious as well as ethical. So if that isn't showing a Kierkegaardian influence, then I don't know what is. Um, he would say that all philosophy, I think he would say, ought to say, or I am moved by Kierkegaard to want to say that all of philosophy pertains to our moral life, and certainly all philosophy of emotion. As a, as a Platonic, I would agree <laughs> completely. <laughs> yeah, I am at the end of my list, so I will ask the last question, which is not philosophical at all. Uh, uh, you have uh, traveled here uh, in person after a long period of, of lockdown and online conferences. How does it feel to be in a different continent, in a different town, uh, with different people? <laughs> it provokes anxiety. I'm anxious about being anywhere out in public among people, because it's the first time that I've been doing these things in a year and a half. I thought that I would hate online teaching because I don't like technology and I don't think of myself as being adept at it. But as you also brought up, I've been a co-organizer of some online workshops in philosophy of emotion, which have been a surprising success to me. I wanted to help create a continuation of the community that we were introduced to in Pisa at the EPSI conference, each of the three of us, among some of the others that are in that online research group. There is a part of me that thinks I'm actually less anxious on Zoom than I am in front of a classroom, because on Zoom, everyone's in front of me. 
There's no one who's just at the periphery of my vision. There's certainly no one behind me on Zoom. I'm just sitting in my living room at the kitchen table. <laughs> and I have more control over all the parameters of the discussion. Leading a discussion of faces on Zoom in a class that's taught online is not at all the same as being in a classroom with people, living, breathing bodies. And yet, Zoom is a better simulation than I ever would have expected it to be of that encounter, which is still a face-to-face -face encounter and an in-person encounter in an important sense. Although at the same time, in a very important way, it's not. So it's been an important substitute. It's been uh, more frequent for me to talk via Zoom with friends that I might ordinarily talk with on the phone because we've needed the community of being able to see each other face to face through the screen at least when we couldn't see each other in person, at least not without a mask on. And it remains true that there are very few people outside of my own family that I have been in an unmasked conversation with all the way since March of last year. And that's almost a year and a half ago. So this week, the seminar, this interview even, the podcast, all of these things are opportunities for me to be talking with others in person. And it's important for me to overcome my fear of doing that. That's part of why I'm here. Thank you, Rick. And we are very much looking forward to the continuation of our discussions during the intensive seminar that starts tomorrow only. Well, I'm looking forward to it very much also. Thank you, Camilla. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Rick. Yes. Lots of comments in, uh, in, uh, in his reading. I mean, it would be nice to end with a Rilke translation, but I don't have any of mine sufficiently memorized. <laughs> I almost remembered this one. It's the last of Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus. <clears throat> so it's the 29th in the sequence of, well, okay, let me put it this way. So Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus are 55 in number. The first part has 26, and the second part has 29. So this is the 29th sonnet of part two of the sonnets to Orpheus in my translation. Quiet friend of many distances, feel how your breath is creating room. Among the rafters of dark belfries, let yourself ring out. Whatever is eating you is growing strong upon this offering. Give way to transformation every time. What experience brings your deepest suffering? If your drinking is bitter, turn to wine. In this comprehensive night, become the junction where all senses intermix. Be the truth of their odd rendezvous. And if the world has forgotten you, say this to the stable earth, I run. Tell the rushing water, I exist. Tell the rushing water, I exist. It's a really nice way to end this poetic interview. Thank you, Rick. You're welcome. Thank you both.